In our house, uh, one of the highlights each day is when our kids get home from school and come off the bus and get to show us what they brought home in their backpack. They're often I'm so excited to show us the assignments they completed at school or show us some cool art project they made or maybe a library book they picked up. It's just a very exciting and joyous event in our house every single day. It's exciting and joyous, except when it isn't. A few weeks ago, there was a very sad incident that took place. I wasn't home to experience it, but it's been uh, recounted to me multiple times. Micaiah, when he got off the bus, he was so incredibly excited. He bounded up the, the driveway. His face was just beaming with excitement. He came into the house and said, Mom, Mom, close your eyes, close your eyes. He had something to show her that was in his backpack. And it's very common for our three-year-old daughter, Tehila, to say, close your eyes, when she wants to show us something in her backpack. But Micaiah very rarely does that. And so he was very excited. And so Shelly closed her eyes, and she could hear him opening the backpack. And then she heard him start to wail. She opened her eyes and saw him pulling out of his backpack a stocking that he had made in one of his classes for St. Nick's Day. But the stocking looked like this. It had somehow gotten wet in the backpack on the way home because his water bottle leaked on it. It's the first time his water bottle's ever leaked in his backpack. And that weakened the, the, the construction paper enough that somehow it tore in the backpack. And he was just devastated by this. And when I got home a couple hours later, the stories were counting to me. And my heart just broke for him. And, I mean, I'm not a very emotional guy usually, but I almost had tears of the story. I mean, even looking at it now, it's, it's heart-wrenching for me to see that little stocking that he invested so much time and care and just joy into and to see it wrecked. But that's what happens when you're a parent, that you care so much to, for your children to have the best, uh, for things to go well for them. And then when they are hurting, your heart aches right along with them. Now keep that in mind as we switch gears here just for a second. In Luke chapter 2, we have the classic Christmas passage from Scripture, the one that's read, it was read at the beginning of the service. It's read pretty much every Christmas season in pretty much every church. But there is a portion of Luke chapter 2 that is oftentimes neglected. And I find it kind of ironic that it's neglected because it takes place just a few weeks after Jesus was born. And it takes place a long time before the Magi came to visit Jesus. And it's a passage that talks about when Mary and Joseph took the baby Jesus to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord. As they are there, an old man named Simeon comes up to them. Let me read to you what happens next. It says, It had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took Jesus into his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was just said about him. And so you put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes here. I mean, they would be so excited. I mean, you just look at parents of a newborn. I mean, they're filled with joy and excitement, just the privilege of being able to hold that little baby. And they would, I imagine, have just joy welling up inside of them. 
as Simeon is, is proclaiming to them from the Holy Spirit the significance of this little baby. They already knew something about his significance, but, but their eyes were probably open in a fresh way as they have someone else telling them about Jesus. So they'd be filled with joy. But what Simeon said next to them would have sent chills down their spine. It says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your soul too. A sword will pierce your own soul. Simeon here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is referring to something that will happen in Jesus' life as he grows, something that will, that will just wreak havoc in, in, in Mary's soul, will cause her a deep anguish, and pain. Now she knew that Jesus was someone special. That had already been revealed to her. But as she held the baby Jesus in her arms, I doubt that she fully knew that even though he would deliver righteous and perfect life, being a blessing to others in God's name, that one day he would be crucified as a despised criminal. So you think about how the heart of a mother or a father is for their children's well-being. Yet Mary's soul would be pierced as if with a sword. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. We are in a series right now that is called The Glory of Christmas. But really it's focused on the glory of Christ because Christ is the reason that, that Christmas is so glorious. And we're walking through this passage in Philippians 2, step by step through this, through this um, Christmas season, to really understand from God's perspective— what is going on in the birth of Christ at Christmas time? So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dive in to this passage. Our Father, we thank you that you so love the world, that you sent your one and only Son into this world, that we may not be condemned, but may have life through him. And I pray that today, as we dig into Philippians 2 and other parts of Scripture, that you will open our eyes in a fresh way, open our hearts, Lord, to see the glory of Christ, but also to see and apply how you want us to respond to Jesus and his teaching and his example. So please be our teacher now, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read Philippians 2, picking up in verse 6, where Paul says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as I said earlier, we're walking through this passage step by step. Today we're focusing in specifically on verse 8. Now, the couple of verses before that detail how Jesus is God, but he did not leverage his status as God for his own benefit. Instead, he was willing to empty himself, to set aside that heavenly glory, to set aside many of the privileges that are associated with being God. And he came to this earth, taking on the form of a human being. And today we see that being found in appearance as a man, verse 8, he humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself there are many circumstances that we can face in our lives that humble us. 
And we think, for instance, of a, of a child or teenager who brings home a bad report card. That can be very humbling. Or you have someone who loses their job. That can certainly be very humbling. You think about some time that you invest so much time in some project or, or just something that you're so excited about, but then it falls apart. That's very humbling. Or you just make some boneheaded decision while driving your car. I mean, that can be incredibly humbling, especially if it involves someone else's car as well, if you run into them or something like that. I mean, you think about the times that we say something embarrassing or, or we do something that, that we really wish we had done or, or when we're caught for something that we really shouldn't be doing in the first place or, or just simply when we just sincerely forget to do something that we should do. Those are very humbling experiences. And we as human beings don't like to be humbled in that way. I mean, typically we do everything we can to avoid humbling situations. And if we find ourselves in one of those situations, we scramble to get out of it as quickly as possible. Yet here we see Jesus, and it says that he humbled himself. Now there is a huge difference between being humbled by something and choosing to humble yourself. Now, typically, when you think about our humbling experiences, there's something that happened that is some outside force uh, imposing itself upon us, or it's an accident that we do that humbles us, that's embarrassing, perhaps. And these are things that happen against our will. We wish they didn't happen, and we try to reverse course as quickly as we can when they do. So that's one side of being humbled. But the other side, completely different, is intentionally choosing to humble yourself. And that is the choice that Jesus makes here. And it says, he humbled himself. It's an intentional act of the will that he chose to do. And we see this, little glimpses of it throughout his ministry. For instance, I think of John chapter 10. Jesus is is using an analogy, calling himself the good shepherd. He says, chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I laid down my life for the sheep. Jumping ahead to verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And so we see Jesus with his death. I mean, he's he's foretelling that, um, but he's being very clear. I have the authority to lay down my life, or I have the authority to take it up again. I choose to lay it down. It's an intentional choice of humility. We see this further in John chapter 19 when Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate. Uh, Pontius Pilate's questioning Jesus and says to Jesus, where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So you know what? Pilate had a lot of earthly power. But Jesus, being God here in human form, he did not have to submit to that earthly power. He intentionally chose to humble himself, to allow himself to be crucified. Uh, Typical criminals who are crucified, they have no choice. Jesus completely had a choice, but he willingly chose to humble himself and submit to death, even death, on a cross. Now we have to recognize that this mentality, this willingness to humble ourselves, 
is not just something that Jesus did and then we get to live our lives however we want. It's really a calling for us as well to humble ourselves. I think of Matthew chapter 18. Uh, it's Jesus' disciples, and they come up to him saying, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4. And it says that Jesus, calling, a child, calling to him a child, he put the child in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So you hear that phrase at the end, whoever humbles himself. It's the intentional choice to take the role of a servant, to humble ourselves, to take a lowly position and perspective on things. It's the exact same uh, wording as we see here in Philippians 2.8 about Jesus humbling himself. So we have the question, how do we do this? How do we humble ourselves in this way? Now, as a huge topic. We could have an entire sermon series on that and still not exhaust the topic. But I think Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4 offers a glimpse into what that looks like. Paul writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, be each of you to the interests of others. I mean, this is hard. But if we can put this into practice, we will be a long way down the road towards humbling ourselves in the way that Jesus did in his, in his relationships with those around him. So being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Now, in the New International Version, which is the translation I'm reading from, I think that phrase is a little bit ambiguous. It says, becoming obedient to death. Now, in the bullet point you see on the screen, I made it intentionally wordy in order to communicate the real point that, that Paul's making here, that he was obedient all the way to the point of death. When you just say that he was obedient to death, it kind of sounds like death is Jesus' master. Like, um, death is the master. Jesus has, the, has a decision to make. Am I going to obey death or not? And, and he, so he chooses to submit himself to death's wishes. That's not what this is saying at all. If you were to look uh, in a more literal translation, it would say that he became obedient to the point of death. That's how far he went. He did not stop short of that mission. He did not bow out early. He didn't cut any corners. He was obedient all the way to the point of death. Now, was this easy for Jesus? No. I don't think it was easy for Jesus. One reason I say this is I look in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus was crucified, you see him praying to his heavenly Father, and I mean, he has his sweat coming off of him like drops of blood, and he prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. And this cup is a metaphor for God's wrath that we poured out on him on the cross. He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. So he has this human nature in him that, that is very uncomfortable, very um, not excited about dying on a cross. Yet remember, he is obedient all the way to the point of death. He says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. He is obedient and going to follow through all the way to the end. And I think this, this attitude of complete obedience, no matter what it costs, it's kind of intimidating when you look at that, isn't it? I mean, because we as humans, we like to cut corners. We like to 
you know, examine our options and take the easiest option that gets us to the place that we want to go. We like the easy way. And so I think that Jesus' attitude here is really a bit of an indictment against us because we are so interested in ourselves, on our own opinions, on our own comfort. So what ends up happening is that we, we, don't, we don't exercise obedience to the full extent that Jesus does here. And we tend to make excuses. Let me give you a few. For instance, rather than, than giving ourselves fully to people around us, sort of needs around us, we might say, you know what? I can help you out till 11 o'clock, but then I need to get going. And so, so we're willing to serve up to a point, but once that point comes, we're looking at our watch, and we're thinking, you know what? I need to go do some other things, or I, would, I just want to go relax now. It's my day off. And so we aren't willing to go to that full extent that we could. Or we may say, you know what? I want to help, but this is a lot more that I bargained for. I don't think I can do this. Or we might just have thoughts going through our mind like, you know, that would be a nice thing to do, but that's going to interfere with the Packers game. And so we say no. We make some other excuse. But in reality, it's just because we want to watch the Packers. Or maybe it's, you know what? Someone else can do that. Or I did it last time. Or, you know what? I deserve better than that. Um, I put in my dues back then. It's someone else's turn to do that stuff. I, I, I have higher privileges now. Or you may just think, you know what? It's all mine. I mean, it's mine. I can, my time, my resources, energy, stuff like that. I have the right to do with it what I want. That's an attitude that we oftentimes have in our lives. And I think we do have to recognize that we are limited in terms of time and energy. So realistically, we do have to say no to some things. But at the same time, I think we all many times could use an attitude adjustment and being much more willing to serve others and to humble ourselves rather than looking only to our own interests and not to the interests of others. Now, we see that for Jesus, he was obedient all the way to the point of death. I think this idea of obedience is interesting here because for us as humans, we don't really have a choice of whether or not we're going to die. The mortality rate for humans is 100%. It, it's not negotiable. Yeah, we can do some things that can help prolong our life for a while, but at some point, death comes to every single human being. But for Jesus, death really was optional, at least in the absolute sense. Because being God, he didn't have to die. But in fulfilling his mission, in fulfilling the Father's will for him, he was obedient all the way to the point of death. And so we see this progression taking place in this passage. Let me just outline where we've been so far over the last few weeks in this series. We start out in verse 6 and see that Jesus is God. He starts off as God. And then he empties himself. I mean, but you look at God. I mean, he has the highest, most exalted, most luxurious spot in the universe. I mean, you think about the, the fanciest dwelling place you've ever seen. The fanciest house, maybe a mountain chalet, a palace of some sort, maybe a fancy lake home. I mean, just think of those really fancy places that would be amazing to live in. You have that image in your mind? The best image you can possibly think of, or maybe you're just borrowing one from the screen, those are all slums compared to where Jesus started on his heavenly throne as the king of the universe. So he started as God, but he was willing to empty himself of that heavenly glory 
and of many of the privileges that come with being God. He emptied himself, verse 7, by taking human form. But that was enough. I mean, that would be humbling enough for God to become human. But then he takes further steps down that social ladder. He humbles himself further from simply being a mere human like us, and he submitted himself to a very shameful death. So he's going down this, this social ladder. I mean, rather than being a, a rags-to-riches story that we celebrate here in America, he was completely a riches-to-rags type of story. But he did this because he was on mission. He did this because he was willing to set aside that heavenly glory. He's willing to humble himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. Now we have to understand, I mean, for us, if we've grown up around church at all, we're very familiar with Jesus' death on the cross. I think we can easily lose sight of the significance of what that meant. Back in the Roman Empire, there were many different forms of execution that someone could undergo if they had the death penalty placed upon them. And it's really quite amazing to realize how frequently people in the Roman Empire were executed. I mean, it's quite shocking. Um, it was just a part of that society. But there are many different forms of execution. You can be poisoned. You could be beheaded. You could be burned at the stake. You could be fed to the wild animals in the arena. You could be crucified. Now, in this whole spectrum of things, crucifixion was by far the worst. Now, obviously, crucifixion would be excruciatingly painful physically. I mean, you see you're beaten and then you're nailed to a cross. But the challenge is, and the pain of crucifixion goes much deeper than that. For one, crucifixion was a very slow death. I mean, even if you're in the arena with these wild animals, death isn't going to take that long. Crucifixion, on the other hand, would typically take days to kill a person. Because no major organs were damaged in the process of crucifixion. And so the way the person would typically die who was being crucified was by suffocation. Because in order to get a breath, they'd have to pull themselves up on the nails, dragging their raw back on that rough cross. And eventually they would lose the energy or their muscles would seize up and they wouldn't be able to pull themselves up anymore. And that's the point at which they would finally die when they were no longer able to get a breath. Crucifixion was also incredibly humiliating because it was typically done in a very public place next to a very, very busy road so that others would witness what was taking place. And after the victims died, their bodies would typically be left on the cross for many days, if not many weeks, so the birds and rats could come eat the bodies. As if that wasn't bad enough, according to Old Testament law, anyone who was hung on a cross was under God's curse. Now today, there are probably many of you here who are wearing crosses around your neck on necklaces. Or many of us may have t-shirts that have crosses. Sometimes people get tattoos of crosses on their body. We have, cross, we have many crosses here in the church. I mean, we have a cross up on the steeple exalting it to the highest place. You, in your home or in your workplace, you might have a cross just reminding yourself of your faith in Christ. And it's so interesting how we celebrate the cross. But that was the opposite of how first century culture, even Christians, viewed that cross early on. I mean, the cross did not become prominent as a sign for Christian faith until a little bit later. Because at first, people viewed the cross as absolutely despicable. You may have heard of, of a man named Cicero. 
I know it just from Rhodes or whatever name, Cicero Avenue or stuff like that. But Cicero was a Roman philosopher and politician back a few decades before Jesus was born. And Cicero spoke for many people, especially in the upper classes of the Roman Empire, when he said that the crucifixion is the most cruel and disgusting penalty. He went on to say that the very word cross should be far removed from people's thoughts and conversations. For the very mention of the cross is unworthy of a Roman citizen or a free man. He's saying, you know what? Essentially, the cross is like an obscenity. You shouldn't even use that word because it's so disgusting. It's so vile. Yet this cross is what Jesus willingly went to when he died. Now, typically, when, when someone is uh, sentenced to the death penalty in the Roman Empire, the form of execution would depend on, on their, their social class. If you were in the upper class in that society, you would generally have a more dignified death. You'd perhaps be able to drink poison in, in private rather than out in public. But on the other end of the spectrum came crucifixion. Crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the low in society. People who were violent criminals, people who committed insurrection, uh, which was rebellion against the Roman government, and also it was reserved for slaves. Slaves were by far the most prominent type of people who were crucified. And it was, so many slaves were crucified in the Roman Empire that crucifixion actually became known as the slave's death. The slave's death. And so I think there's, there's not necessarily an irony here. I think it's actually quite intentional, uh, at least under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, where it says in verse 7 that Christ took on the very nature of a slave— and he went on to die a slave's death on the cross. Utterly humiliating, but he was willing to do that. I mean, the cross is as low as you can go, on, humanly speaking. I mean, that's rock bottom. So we have a question of, why did Jesus do that? Why was he willing to step off that heavenly throne, humble himself to such a degree, and to go to such a painful death? Why? Well, the reason is, that humanity, we had a death penalty because the wages of sin is death, and that's spiritual death and physical death. And when something is dead, there's absolutely no way that it can help itself. But God loves the world. John three sixteen. God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son. The reason that Jesus came into this world, why God the Son stepped off his heavenly throne and took on flesh, was to be a substitute for us in that death penalty. Because we all deserve that death penalty. There's nothing we can do to get out of that death penalty on our own. No amount of good works, no amount of religious activity can earn us favor in God's sight. And so Jesus came as the substitute in our place. Because justice still had to be served. Someone still had to pay that penalty for sin. But Jesus came as human because only a human could be a substitute for us humans. But Jesus lived a perfect, holy life. Because that is the only way he could qualify as a substitute. Otherwise, he would have his own death penalty to pay. So Jesus came humbly, submitted himself not only to being a human, but to death on the cross, to pay the death penalty that we deserve for our sins. So really, when you look at it from this angle, Jesus was born to die. He was born to die. You look at the progression in Philippians chapter 2. Why did he come to this world? Well, you just follow the, the, the phrases through there. He ultimately came to die. That was integral to his mission, was to die on the cross, to be a savior, to be a redeemer, to be a substitute for us. 
Now, we started off today talking about parents with children. I want us to put ourselves back in the shoes of Mary, Jesus' mother. Now, I have obviously never given birth to a child. Many of you have, though. You know what that's like. Even though I've never given birth to a child, I know very well what it is like to love a child, to want their well-being, for you to do, be willing to sacrifice anything for their well-being and for them to thrive. And so you think about Mary. Now, Mary's issue with her son was not that her son would bring home an art project that got broken in two. That was not the issue. For Mary, the issue is that her son, his body, would be beaten and broken. You think about Mary as she's holding that little baby Jesus. She certainly knew a glimpse of what his role here on this earth was. But I don't think she, that she fully knew all that that would entail of him being sacrificed bodily on the cross for us. So as we think about Christmas, as we think about the incarnation, which is God coming to earth in human form, we need to remember that Christmas is incomplete without Good Friday and Easter. Now this morning we're celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And it's a reminder of what Christ did for us. The bread represents Christ's body broken for us. The cup represents Christ's blood shed for us. As we prepare our hearts to celebrate what God has done for us through Christ— We're going to be singing a song together called Here I Am to Worship. One of the lines in the song says, I will never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. I mean, it's so true. Such a a radical price that Jesus paid to redeem us. We're going to be singing that song together in preparation for communion. And then we'll have a time just with quiet music playing in the background just to pray, just to thank Jesus for what he's done, perhaps to confess sin, to receive God's grace and forgiveness. And then we'll lead us in celebrating the Lord's Supper together because of what Christ has done for us. So I'm going to pray, and let's prepare our hearts to celebrate Jesus' sacrifice. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to come to this earth to die. That's not typically what we think about when we think about little children who are born. We wish the best for them, but you, Jesus, came with that explicit purpose and that mission And you fulfilled that mission all the way to the end, even to the point of death. And we thank you for your obedience. And Lord, I pray that now that you will draw our hearts close to you and help us as we prepare our hearts for Christmas to also prepare our hearts uh, for this time of communion to remember your sacrifice on our behalf. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.